Thank you, Ryan and worship team. That was, that was wonderful. And what a joy it is to be back at Rio and participate with you in this wonderful Lord's Day. You are faithfully pastored, as you all know. And Tom has labored hard and continues to labor to know the Word of God and to create a community of people who know the Word of God and live it out in our daily lives. We're thankful for that. And it's my privilege to be able to share with you in the ongoing story of the king found in 1 Samuel chapter 20, which has been, I understand, the devotional work of the church for this week. I want to look at this wonderful story about David and Jonathan. So let's begin with prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege of coming to these people with your word and pray that your spirit would anoint what I have to say, that your people would be encouraged as to who they are in Christ this morning. Bless us, we would ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. If we were to somehow be able to transport a number of people from the Old Testament, if we had a time machine and could bring a group of worshipers from Israel into this church today, how would they respond to the worship that they would see? What has become of the community of faith? That is, what has become of true Israel? And I can tell you that I'm convinced that worshipers from the Old Covenant would be overwhelmed, astonished, surprised, shocked at what they would see in our worship In Jesus. When we have our communion table, they would look at our assembly. First thing they would notice is, my goodness, the dignity that is given to women because they sit wherever they want and they come equally to the table. That's not heard of in the Old Testament. Then they would see there are Jews and Gentiles circumcised, uncircumcised, coming to the same table, people from east and west and everywhere. That is unheard of and unthought of in the old covenant, that we would come together as equal in Christ. The thing that would surprise them the most, in fact, I'm confident it would absolutely shock them, is the way that we would pray, the way that we do pray. When we call on God... We say, our Father. That is utterly unknown in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God has many names, but they are the names of His transcendent glory. He is the creator of the ends of the earth, creator of all of the galaxies and stars. He is El Shaddai. He is El Elyon, the highest God. He has all the titles and rules, the great king. They understood God in such a fashion. But no one under the Old Covenant calls God by the title Father. That's far too intimate for the Old Testament imagination to to even dream of. You only find the right and privilege of calling God Father given to one family in Israel, and one family alone. When David is given his covenant by the Lord in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which we have not come to yet, 
God says to the son of Jesse, he says, David, to you and to your seed, the royal seed that will follow after you, to you I will be a father, and you will be a son to me. That is the right and title, the prerogative, the unique privilege of the house of David, and only given to the house of David in the Old Testament, that they could actually presume to call upon the great Lord of glory as our Father. It belongs to only the king and his son, his royal dynastic son, and then to his spouse, his bride. That couple could call upon God as Father, and they alone are invited to do so. So when we come to the New Testament, it's altogether a surprise to an Old Testament believer when the disciples, seeing Jesus and seeing how vital prayer is in his ministry, how encouraged he is in it, how he lives in prayer, they come to him and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, after this fashion, you are to pray. You are to say, all of you, our Father. Now, how can he do that? And what basis does Jesus do that? He does that on the unique basis that he is the heir of David, and he is the one who is entitled to speak to God in his humanity as our Father. But also, his spouse is given that great privilege. Those who are related to him, and our covenant of salvation is a betrothal covenant. You understand that. We, the entire body of the elect of God, we are the bride of Christ. And on the basis of our identity in him, we then can call upon God through that very special and beautiful way we can address God as our Father. It is the privilege of the bride of Christ to be able so to speak. And as any bride, we take the identity of our groom. That means that we have become true Israel because Christ is true Israel. We have an identity. That's who we are. That's who you are as the people of God. You are of the royal tribe of Judah, according to the Old Testament. That is becoming the all-encompassing tribe. That's your identity. It is a royal prerogative. You are a royal priesthood. You're told that again and again in the New Testament. That is who you are. That's your identity. We are to behave ourselves and conduct ourselves in a way that befits the royal calling that is upon us as the beloved espoused of Christ himself. That dignity is now being multiplied into all the earth. It is utterly astonishing that we would have that privilege to be called the children of God. Certainly to the Old Testament, it is utterly astonishing that we have that privilege. And that's who we are, and we need to be mindful of that. The great privilege of calling God our Father, of being a royal priesthood, of being who we are. We are being trained in the heritage of the family of David, because that's our heritage as well. Just like the Prince of Wales spends the first part of his life in training to understand the heritage and the ceremony of what it is to be the King of England. So we are in that same kind of training. His story, the story of the King, 
becomes immediately our story because we are being trained to be royal sons and daughters. And that's the immediacy of these stories and why they're so significant to us. We are not studying history only. We are studying the history of our family by right of our espousals to Christ. The Dauphin in France, when they were under the monarchy, they would spend their time of training and their youth learning what are the rights and prerogatives, the expectations that are upon them once they enter into that royal destiny. And that's who we are. We learn the courtesy of kings. Courtesy comes from the word court. It's the way that we behave one to another, the gentleness, the grace. All of those expectations are upon us. And particularly, there are three characteristics that should describe us that are, to, that are being developed in the text this morning that describe the nature of the king. One of the purposes of chapter 20 in 1 Samuel is to show us why Jonathan, as great as he is, and he is a remarkable soul, we are being shown why David should be king and not Jonathan, for David is greater. And I want to look at that this morning so we can understand, but as we learn these things about these men, we are learning what, we, what is expected of us and our privilege, our great privilege of being in Christ. Well, what, are the, what is the character of the king that we are looking for? How do we identify the king, the one who by right and title should have the crown? There are three virtues that are unique to the king in Israel. Very, very specific virtues that should characterize not just the king, but us as well. And we should practice to grow in these graces. But first of all, the king had to have courage. He had to be a warrior. He had to be accomplished in battle. He had to have great courage. That is the character of the line of David. He had to have wisdom. That discernment, that clear-eyed discernment to be able to know the secrets of the heart, to be able to discern between right and wrong and speak justice in the land. So he had to have courage on the one hand. In battle, he had to have wisdom as he governed. And the third quality, which is different from the classical tradition, interestingly, the third quality of a king in Israel is he must be humble. He must be excelling in humility. That is the character of the king that God appoints. So we look at the story and keep these ideas in mind, and they will show you, as I said, as we begin to evaluate what happens here, we see why David should be king and not Jonathan. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah. He flees because Saul has recently hurled a javelin at him to destroy him. And he knows that and hunted him down, sent soldiers to arrest him in order to kill him. David knows, he has the wisdom to discern that the king is wicked and intends his death. So David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Notice what, how David approaches this. David knows that the king is mad. But David doesn't come with accusations against Jonathan's father. He comes to Jonathan in humility. What have I done? Is there anything I've done? Is there some guilt with me? 
that has occasioned Saul's wrath against me. He comes self-examining himself. He comes in great humility. He begins his interview with Jonathan with humility. He will end it with humility as well. And he said to him, Far from it, Jonathan did. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. Jonathan is very good-natured. He's a very noble soul. But in his love for his father, his wisdom fails. And he does not discern the truth, the true character of his father. David is clear-eyed about Saul, but he knows that Jonathan has not discerned his father correctly. And so David will propose this method of exposing the wicked heart of Saul toward David, not so that David can understand it, but so that his friend can see for himself that his father intends harm against the Lord's anointed. So David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. He takes a vow, and he says, I am at the place of death itself. I must flee. He must flee for his life and be disobedient to his king in order to preserve his life. He knows that he has been appointed to be king. And I believe David is confident that he knows that God will bring that about and that Saul ultimately will fail in his purposes toward him. So anyway, uh, he says to him, Jonathan says to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. What do you want me to do, David? How will you show this to me, that my father is intent on your murder? David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. He's under a summons. He must come to the supper. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field until the third day at even. If your father misses me at all, then say, David, earnestly ask leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant, but if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. David knows that Saul will use this occasion to arrest him and to kill him. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? He ends, as I said, with humility. If there is any fault in me, David says, you take care of it. Dispatch me immediately. Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. They go into the field because there there will be no witness. No one will hear them and understand their plan. The signal by which Jonathan, once he's discovered the heart of his father, will be able to disclose that to David. 
Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord also do to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. David is at the very beginning of what of the time, this long season that God will appoint for him to be hunted down by Saul. David, as I've said, is humble. And God will bring a Saul into his life. Why? Because he will teach him to remain humble. He will have a thorn in his side. And that will keep him humble before God. There are times in our lives when God brings things and circumstances in order to encourage us in these virtues that he finds Christ-like. And so the question is, can he ever come back to court or must he live the rest of his days, of Saul's days anyway, as a refuge, as, as a fugitive? If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, Jonathan says, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Very noble character is this Jonathan. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself. He will meet him on the third day. And that's profoundly significant. The emphasis of the text is on the third day. On the third day, David will be delivered from death. And the third day, throughout the whole history of all the kings of Judah, It is the third day when God delivers these royal kings from death. And that is our prerogative and privilege, the resurrection power that Paul says dwells in all of us. God is oftentimes pleased to express on the third day. And that is true of the house of David. It is a great privilege that we have, the resurrection power that is in all of us and one day will awaken us from death itself. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, always three. Three arrows as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the young man saying, go and find the arrows. If I say to the young man, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. For you are to come. And for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. After he's discovered the heart of his father, he will give a signal. David is to stand by this rock that they've appointed. And Jonathan will shoot arrows, lest he be overseen, and David be apprehended. He will give him a signal. If he shoots the three arrows beyond David, David is in jeopardy. That means that he is within range of the arrows of his father who intends to pierce him to death. If the arrows fall short of David, then there is no harm that Jonathan has discovered in the soul of his father. If I say to the young man, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, you are to come. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. 
And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. Now you know the story, and you know how it proceeds. Jonathan sits at supper at the new moon with his, with his father. And David's place is empty. And Saul assumes, because uh, David is not there, that it, perhaps it's a matter of uncleanness. But the uncleanness can be cleansed at evening time. And when David doesn't appear the second day, Saul is in a rage and a fury. And he discovers that Jonathan has given David permission not to come to the court. And his rage and his fury at David is now transferred to his own son. And he reasons irrationally with Jonathan. This man, as long as he's living, your throne, Jonathan, is not secure. He knows that David has the right and title to the throne, to the disadvantage of his own son. He says, Jonathan, your throne is not secure. And then he takes a javelin in his rage and fury and hurls it at his son, whose throne he wants to protect, but whose life he puts in jeopardy. The irrationality, the madness of sin is all that that intends. And so Jonathan, the heart of his father, is discovered. He recognizes that David is right. And he rises up in his distress. He doesn't eat anything the second day. But the morning of the third day, he goes into the field with a word that will deliver David from the death that Saul intends against him. And he goes into the field and he shoots the arrows. And as you know, um, David is in range. Verse 35, in the morning Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? He makes the verbal uh, claim so that the signal and the sign cannot be misinterpreted. And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David and Jonathan recognize that they have not been followed. They're not being watched. They are truly alone in the field. And so David presents himself to Jonathan. They will only ever meet one more time in that ever so briefly. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. There's the three again. Three arrows, three bows. He comes in the posture of humility before Jonathan, knowing that now Jonathan knows that his father wants to kill him. He comes in this tremendous aspect of humility. He is the anointed king by Samuel of Israel, but he comes bowing himself to Jonathan. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Why does the chronicler tell us that? That's the, that's the significant statement here. Why, does it, why are we told that David wept more than Jonathan did? We'll talk about that in a second. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, 
because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my seed and your seed forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And that's our story. This chapter, the Chronicler, includes in Holy Scripture to show us, as I said, why David should be king and not Jonathan. When you look at them, you compare them in terms of their courage, their wisdom, and their humility. What about their courage? Jonathan is tremendous in his courage, isn't he? Remember the story of the garrison at Michmash and how Jonathan, with his own armor-bearer, had completely overthrown the Philistines alone, armed only in the strength of the Lord. He had the courage to attack the entire camp in a day when Israel was as good as dead. That's the hero of Jonathan. But when we come to the quarrel, the challenge to single combat of Goliath, Jonathan is strangely not seen. Jonathan had the courage to go after the garrison, but when he saw Goliath, he was dismayed and discomfited. But David took to the field. David, his courage is greater than Jonathan's. His title to rule is therefore greater. This chapter shows us the nature of wisdom. The great virtue of the king is wisdom and judgment and discernment. David has a razor, laser-like judgment about him. He can discern the secrets of the heart. Jonathan is too good. He's too kindly disposed toward his increasingly more wicked father. He cannot imagine that anyone would want to harm David. He cannot imagine that his own father intends to kill him. And that clouds his judgment. His wisdom is not a kingly wisdom. He is a good man, but David's wisdom is unclouded. He has discovered the heart of the king, and he understands that he must flee. But he also understands that he does not want to compromise the love of his friend. And so he arranges all of this to discover the heart of his father, Saul, to Jonathan, even to Jonathan's dismay. But his wisdom, the wisdom of David, is greater than the wisdom of Jonathan. And what of humility? What of humility? This chapter emphasizes the humility of David. He knows how wicked Saul is, but he doesn't come charging Saul, although he could justly charge him. He comes saying, Jonathan, is there some fault in me? Have I occasioned justly the wrath of your father? Is there some flaw in me? If there is some flaw in me, don't take me to your father, but kill me yourself. I think he speaks that in sincerity. He comes in humility. And then when Jonathan comes to him with a signal, that he must flee for his life. He comes in gratitude and in grief, bowing humbly to the earth three times before the Prince Royal at that time of Israel, who is Jonathan. Humility, courage, and wisdom. Jonathan is great in the annals of Israel. We all understand that. 
But the chronicler is showing us how David is greater. David is greater than Jonathan by far. And that is the family to which we are attached. We are summoned to manifest these same virtues. The spirit that operates in David operates in us as well. But no one is greater than the son of David. Who is greater than Jesus, the true king of Israel? Who is greater than he? Think about Jesus now with respect to these great virtues by which we can clearly discern that David is greater than Jonathan. But by how so much greater is the son of David than the son of Jesse? How much greater is Jesus than David? We looked at David with respect to his courage, his wisdom, and his humility. With his courage, who could be greater than than David, who goes into single combat against Goliath? Who could be greater than that? Is there a greater hero tale than that? David goes armed only with five small, smooth stones from the brook. Remember that? It's all he has, five small stones. But Jesus comes. John tells us that he takes the field as the Lamb of God against the great red dragon, Satan himself. Whatever Goliath represented, Jesus fights the true spiritual reality, the enemy of all of us. The Lamb of God against the great red dragon. And John says something else, that Jesus goes to war against this dragon with five fatal wounds. My goodness, with five fatal wounds, that Lamb of God stumbled onto the field intentionally to to rescue us from the great red dragon. That is the courage of our Christ, the true Son of David. He took to the field against the ancient enemy of God. Why? For you and for me. That is the authentic and true courage of the king. And what about wisdom? When Nathaniel hears about Jesus, Peter and uh, Andrew say, we've found the Christ, and he hears he's from Nazareth. Well, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? The skeptic Nathaniel says he doesn't believe it. And they say, they say, come and see. So he comes to see Christ. And what does Christ do? He knows, he discerns the intents of the heart of Nathaniel. He reads him. He says, you are a true Israelite. There is no guile in you. And he says to him, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel immediately recognizes this is the wisdom. This is the wisdom of Messiah. And he says, you are the king of Israel. He confesses faith because he sees that Jesus discerns his own heart out of his wisdom that is given to him by God. And hasn't Jesus discerned your heart and mine too? He knows all your sin and mine, and he loves us anyway. That is the wisdom 
of the true Son of David. That is Christ, who is greater than all. And what about humility? In the ancient world, the kings wore robes of scarlet and crimson. Purple, the royal color of majesty. And beautiful ceremonies in robes. But when you're Christ, when the true son of David becomes king of Israel, there is a title over his cross. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And look at him there as he enters into his kingdom, naked for you. And the only scarlet he has is his own blood poured out for you and for me, covered in royal purple and scarlet. And in his nakedness, he is providing for you and for me his own royal robes of his own righteousness that we might be arrayed in his royalty. Jonathan is great. David is greater. But no one is greater than Jesus. In his love, in his wisdom, in his courage, and his humility, he is greater than all. Our Father, We thank you for the privilege of addressing you as our Father, which comes to us through your Son, our Savior. We thank you this morning for our Christ, who has seen us in our common and mean estate and ennobled us and lifted us into the ranks of those who are called a royal priesthood. We thank you for the the tremendous privileges that we have in the grace of our faith. We ask that you would establish us, that we in this world and in this life would walk in a manner that pleases you, consistent with our calling, as participants in the royal tribe of Judah through Jesus, that we might manifest the courage of the king and the wisdom of the king and above all the humility of the King. And we ask these graces in the name of our precious Savior. Amen.